turn your Bibles this morning to the book of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, we want to dig into this kind of middle section of where Paul is giving this defense of his travel plans to the church in Corinth. Uh, it's almost the, those of you who may be familiar with the Gospel of Mark, he's known as using a Markin sandwich where he starts one truth, puts something in the middle, comes back to it later. 2 Corinthians here is similar in that way. I don't see my Prezi up there, so let's try this. Help me out. There it is. Hey, great, that'll work. So, um, trying to understand this, we'll really dig into verses 18 through 22 this morning, and it's that middle portion. Uh, and as Paul's been defending his travel plans and working through this with, these, uh, with his church, uh, they really have seized upon his shifting ideas and his shifts and plans, and have used that to accuse Paul of a lack of integrity, of really being a liar. And, and so he understood, though, that the bigger problem with that didn't have as much to do with an attack on him personally. But it had to do with the reality that if they begin thinking that Paul's a liar and that he doesn't have integrity, that ultimately they're not going to be able to trust the content of his message. And since the content of his message is the gospel, it is Christ, to doubt his integrity will eventually become a doubting of the gospel itself and will lead to a shipwreck of their faith. And so Paul launches into this defense of his travel plans. It's interesting uh, because maybe you've been in a position before where you've been falsely accused. And, and people are always like, well, how do I respond to this? What do I do with that? And some folks immediately run to the example of Christ. He was silent uh, as a sheep before its shears. And so someone should accuse you. You should say nothing at all. Uh, here's the problem with that kind of thinking. And so I want to give a little apologetic for Paul. When you read through 2 Corinthians, Paul is loath to have to defend himself. And he, understood, he understands trying to defend yourself, particularly against motive accusations, is almost impossible. And so he launches and he latches onto a very unique way of defending himself that I think we could, if we took time, we could even learn from the methodology of Paul. But why does Paul defend himself when Jesus is silent? And it's actually really uh, a, a beautiful truth for you to realize. If you and I were to stand before God, sinners, unrepentant, unbelieving, we should be silent before the judge because we have no excuse. We have no defense. And so Christ assumed silence as a manifestation of taking on your and my sin guilt. He was guilty of nothing. He had every defense possible in the world. But he chose not to defend himself so that he was identifying and taking on our sin. Paul defends himself here because he understands it's actually a defense of the righteousness of Christ. Their accusations are going to go against Christ and the gospel itself. And so Paul wants to lay the groundwork to help bolster their faith. And he actually does it in a couple of key ways. He really boils down the accusations of 2 Corinthians in these three categories. He's essentially accused of lacking integrity. That's what we'll deal with this morning. He's accused of not being very competent as a minister or as an apostle. You haven't been very effective. You might remember from 1 Corinthians, they looked at uh, Peter and Apollos and Christ, and they said, look at all the fruit for their labors. Paul, what do you have? Which is ironic because they were fruits for his labors. Uh, but you're not very competent. Now we've got these super apostles that have shown up, and those guys are where it's at. Paul's a nobody. And so he defends competency. And then thirdly, they'll say he has no power. 
He can't affect change. Uh, he's a scaredy cat when he's uh, in person, and then he writes big words. Look at, look at Paul. Um, he doesn't have any power. And so Paul, these become a core truth or, or marker that you could follow throughout 2 Corinthians. And what's interesting is he defends himself the same way against every accusation. And the defense essentially boils down to this. That's not an attack on me. That's an attack on Christ in me coming out of me. And I'm not going to let that stand. You are assaulting Jesus when you say that there is a lack of power in ministry. Because God will do as he sees fit. And I'm nobody. I get nothing done. But don't you dare say Jesus doesn't have the power to raise the dead. Competency? Look, it's really not about what I have to do or say. It's what Jesus is doing. So don't accuse of competency. And then this morning, integrity. He says it this way in verse 12 of chapter 1. Our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience. We behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity. Not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely so toward you. What he's telling them is the things I've told you are the things God has told me to tell you. And so if you don't like what I'm saying, if you think I lack integrity, the reality is you're actually saying you don't like what God is saying and you don't like his integrity. And so he feels the need to defend it, and it kind of comes to this crux moment in verses 18 through 22, and that's where we'll be spending our time this morning. Let me read those to us, and, and then we'll continue to, to dig into the word this morning. And Paul says it uh, this way, As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no. But in him, it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us. And who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Now, you might be struggling a little bit in the moment and say, but that, that does seem a little arrogant for Paul to basically say an attack on me is an attack on Jesus, right? It, I mean, if I said that to you this morning as, as a pastor, look, so you're accusing me of this, you're really attacking Jesus. Well, my guess is you'd have no problem with that if that attack just seemed outlandish or if it came from a lost person, right? If, if someone were to say, Steve, uh, as your shepherd or, or Darren as one of your shepherds, you know what, they don't love people. And you'd be like, no, I just know that's not true. They don't care for their wives. I, mean, I just know that's not true. They don't care for their kids. I just know that that's not the case. They don't love Christ. I just, I, I, you dismiss it. Out of hand. And, but if I were to then say, listen, an attack on the way I love my kids or my wife or my friends is an attack on Jesus. We've seen people abuse that kind of line and that kind of defense. And so you may be a little uncomfortable to hear Paul defend himself that way. And so let me help you maybe work through that just a brief moment. When we experience true ministry, we are experiencing Christ toward us. And maybe the easiest way to think of that is in the realm of spiritual gifts. When we come into Christianity, we're saved and 
God puts us into a body, universal church, and uh, you really should be part of a local church, but he also gives you spiritual gifts and things like leadership or administration, giving or generosity, um, uh, teaching, exhortation. We have all these spiritual gifts, mercy, right, with service. We have these spiritual gifts, and, and Jesus really is the perfect culmination of all those, but none of us have them all. But instead, as we are generous toward one another or merciful or teach or serve or administrate, we are showing Christ to them. To dismiss that service then would be to dismiss the ministry of Christ himself. Christ loves us well at times through other people. And so that's what Paul's defending. Paul's defending the idea that they are resentful and rejecting of his ministry, and it's really ultimately and culminating in rejection of Christ and his ministry toward them. And so he really drives it home to one big thing that should take place then. And we find it right there in the middle of the text. And he says, really, that, that we should shout the amen to the glory of God. That's an affirmation, and um, we're not a very loud amening kind of church, right? Uh, but he's saying our lives should declare God is true. And so believers must show and speak the hope that we have in the promises of God. And so what we have to do this morning then is figure out how does Paul link this to promises? Um, why does it work that way? And then what do I do with it, really? And so let's, let's start off, first of all, by thinking about promises in the biblical narrative. Because that's where Paul goes. Paul hears integrity, an accusation God can't be trusted, and he goes to promises. And the reason he does that is because promises play this prominent role throughout the entire biblical narrative. First thing we need to know about it is that uh, promises come frequently in dark times. And when it's dark, that's when you need promises. You need some hope. You need some light uh, in the midst of a dark valley. Uh, the promises of God are like these bright, shining lights. Now, in the middle of a sunny afternoon, the bright light of the sun lets you be creative and do work, and it warms your body and your soul. But in the darkest valley, in the deepest trials of our lives and our suffering, light, the promises of God, is what dispels the darkness. It's what drives the fog away. It's what helps us continue on when it seems like we can't carry on. In the wonderful Puritan book, Valley of Vision, which is a collection of prayers, it talks about the fact that the light of God shines the brightest when you're in the deepest of wells. And so in the midst of the darkness of this world and our own sin and others' sin against us and suffering, we need the light of God, and it finds its form in promises. Promises are a gift from the Father of lights in heaven. Promises is exactly what we turn to when things are difficult. Promises are hope in the darkness, light for our journey, rooted in the confidence of the one making them, and based on past integrity. That's a complex definition, but every part of that is important. The fact that when things are really difficult, that's what you run to. It's hard to focus on other things, and maybe your sorrow overwhelms you. Maybe it's the middle of the night, and you don't know how to sleep, and you're wrestling with anxiety or worry or fear, and where your heart wants to run to is some promise of a better day, some promise of, of a future, some promise of redemption, some promise of resurrection power. Just yesterday, uh, my wife watched a funeral of, of a dear friend and a um, former teacher of hers and someone that had impacted her life, and their hope of the family was in the resurrection, but it's because God promised it. God will raise the believer, and they will be with him forever. 
When they close their eyes here, they open their eyes in glory. And this world is just a brief spot, a brief blip in eternity. It's a promise that they run to in the midst of darkness. And it gives light for your current journey. It's what helps fuel you. It's what helps move you. And it's rooted, though, in the confidence of who's making them. Someone making promises to you that doesn't have the power to fulfill them means nothing. Right? I'm going to make sure that if somebody came to you and said, I'm going to make sure you never have any financial needs. And you know they don't have a job and they're homeless. They have no power for that promise. So if someone's going to make a promise, they've got to have the ability to fulfill it, but then you've got to have a track record that you know that they will, or it gives no hope. We've all been the victims of broken promises. We've probably all been the perpetrators of broken promises. Enough broken promises and people just stop believing what you say. And so every part of that is critical. Um, Promises come in moments in our lives and they're the loudest when things are the darkest. You might think in our culture of George Bush standing there September 14th at the rubble of 9-11 and he made promises as the first responders were crying out uh, he was, they were having a hard time hearing him, and he yelled back to them, I can hear you, I can hear you. The rest of the world hears you, and the people who knocked these buildings down will hear all of us soon. We all knew what he meant, and we all wanted it. We wanted justice, and that was the promise he made. And now, 20 years later, there has been some forms of justice. But it was the promise in that moment that mattered. It's like General MacArthur telling the Philippines as he leaves, I will return. And when he came back, he could have came by, come back to the Philippines in any number of ways. But he intentionally chose to be landed off the beach to walk through the waters. Why would he choose that? Because he wanted the image of conquering, returning hero. He had promised I'll come back, and he did. They were dark and it was difficult and they knew they were going to go into a season with Japanese occupation which was, was going to be and was horrific. They needed the promise in the midst of this dark time. These promises by MacArthur, by Bush, they're rooted in a trust of the person making them. You've got to have a confidence that this person's going to follow through. Medical promises can be quite different. Promises of things like you're not going to feel any pain because you're going to be under anesthesia. Promises that certain antibiotics will work. Oh, you have this infection, we'll give you this antibiotic, we know it's going to work. Promises that a procedure is going to cure you. Many of those promises are rooted in past successes. They think that this antibiotic will help you because they have a long track record with it and they've seen it help people. They think this procedure will help you because they have a long track record of that procedure and they say this will help you. It's based in science, which is looking at evidence from the past and then thereby predicting the future. And they make promises that way. Promises come to us in these dark times and bring light. In the biblical narrative, the first promise we see of God is a promise of rescue. And in the first gospel, the Proto-Evangelium in Genesis, he promises Adam and Eve that one day he's going to undo all the wrong and all the evil because he's going to send a serpent-crushing hero. And for Adam and Eve, that is light in what is now a very dark garden for them. Promises are 
come in dark times, and that's when we need them. Biblically, we can think of them categorically. And the first category that's helpful to think about promises in the Bible and the biblical narrative are covenant promises. And there's a number of com- covenants and, and promises in the Bible. kind of depends largely on what theological strain you're in. But there are five core covenant promises. There's the Noahic covenant. I'm not going to destroy the earth again by flood. And here's the rainbow, the sign and seal of my covenant promise to you. I will rescue and I will always have a humanity. There's the Abrahamic covenant, which continues to build and has many parts as God expands upon it. But at its core, the Abrahamic covenant is that through you, Abraham, I am going to bless the whole world. And I promise to do this. There's the Mosaic Covenant, that there is a righteousness before God. There's the Davidic Covenant, that out of your line, there is going to be a king. Each of these covenant promises brings answers to suffering people. In the Noahic Covenant, he's standing on a planet where there's only eight souls and a few animals, and everything else is dead. And he needed a promise in the midst of that dark time that God would not deal this way again with the world. The Abrahamic covenant comes to a couple with no children, no way to produce a progeny. They're barren, and God gives a promise in the midst of the darkness of their infertility. The Mosaic covenant comes when the nations are confused, and how do we press forward, and are we really God's people? And he signs and seals them, and he makes them his own, and he codifies it in a law that would define their sin and drive them to righteousness. The Davidic covenant, is there ever going to be a right king? We've had Saul, who who ultimately was wicked, and then we have David, who's supposed to be this man after God's own heart, and he is, but then he's also a murderer and an adulterer. We need a king, and he promises there will come a one true king. There's lots of references throughout 2 Corinthians to the new covenant that we now have in Christ. And we'll unpack that one as we move forward through the book of 2 Corinthians. But what he's telling us is the promises of God that are going to find their yes in Jesus, we should think of them as coming in dark times, and we should think of them as covenant promises. But we should ultimately think of them as promises that are in a person. The ultimate fulfillment is a man, God-man, Jesus Christ. Verse 18, as surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. That original promise in the garden, that proto-evangelium, that first gospel, is a promise of a person, a serpent crusher. And Adam and Eve understood that. And the reality is all the other promises of God that flow from that point forward are simply clarifications and expansions on that first original promise. It was always going to be fulfilled in a person. Always. It's not a place. It's not a location. It's not a flag. It's not a nation. It's a person. It's a king. And so everything is constantly pointing back to Christ. Uh, it depends on who you look at, how many promises are, there are in the Old Testament. It's reasonable when you look at everybody's numbers and who, who's where, that there's some 7,000 promises throughout the Old Testament. And Paul is arguing that they all ultimately find their yes in Jesus. He's telling us that this is who they have preached. He uses a wonderful word there in, in the Greek, it's, it's charakthes, 
And it means to proclaim boldly. He says, this is who we proclaim to you. When he came to tell them that you're a sinner and you are condemned to an eternal hell and you are without hope and without excuse, but Jesus has come. He didn't say, but you can pay money, but you can offer sacrifices, but, but you can be good. He said, no, but Jesus has come. And God promises hope and salvation through him. To proclaim the promises of God is to proclaim Christ, and you can never separate the two. He's the always yes to every possible promise. To preach Christ is to preach light and hope and truth. Now this is critical. Because when we bring promises to people that are in dark times, they need to hear truth. It does not serve people to lie to someone who is suffering. It does not serve people to to not deal honestly with those that are hurting. Making false promises to people only exaggerates their pain. It only increases their hardship and their difficulty. This is ultimately why Paul is going hard after them, that they did not say yes and no at the same time. To say yes and no at the same time is to speak in a hypocritical, unstable way. It's to make promises that are not possible or that you don't have the power to fulfill. It's to look at someone that's hurting and say to them, man, I know you, you've got this. When someone is hurting and really struggling, they already feel astoundingly insufficient. And your promises that you believe they are sufficient don't help them. You hurt them. They already know their sufficiency can't be found in themselves. Telling somebody everything's going to be okay when you don't know everything's going to be okay doesn't love them. It doesn't serve them. It isn't kind to them. In fact, it's what the false teachers of the Old Testament would do. They would say it would heal wounds lightly. And you know what happens when you heal a wound lightly? You invite infection. And so suddenly you might have a cut, a deep cut, and instead of getting in and making sure you suture up where the the muscles have been cut apart and severed or the tendons have been cut apart, instead of doing that, you you smear a little neosporin on it, you slap a Band-Aid on it. And then the crosses sets in and the flesh around it begins to eat itself away and die because you healed it lightly and you make it far worse than it ever was to begin with. And so this is what the false teachers would do spiritually. Looking at someone who is lost and in desperate need of Jesus and not speaking the truth of Christ to them is to say yes and no. Because when you and I do that, in those moments, we are more afraid of their rejection than we are passionate about their rescue. And Paul says, I would not do that because Jesus is always yes. He is always going to come in truth and in power. I refuse to deal with you like a false teacher. I refuse to give to you a confused yes and no. It sounds nice, but it gives no help at all. 
So Paul says he can't do that because Jesus is the great yes. He's always going to be communicating in truth. Paul is speaking hope to people when he speaks the word to people. And so this is how we should think about promises in the biblical narrative as we work our way through. But then let's understand a little bit more. What does it mean that Jesus is this promised yes? Uh, How do we wrap our minds around that so that we can give our amen to it? And and first of all, that Jesus is the yes of every single Bible promise. And I've referenced this a little bit, but, but let's dig in just a touch more. Jesus is the serpent crusher. Adam and Eve thought it was going to be their kids, Cain and Abel. They, they thought it was those dudes, but it never was. Jesus was always going to be the one who's going to come and grind the head of the serpent into the dust of this earth. Jesus is the true ark. He's the only method of rescue. He's the only means of rescue. The father brings them in, seals the door. It's just a glorious picture. Jesus is the rescuer that floats us out of the pouring down wrath of God. Jesus is the blessing to all nations. The Abrahamic covenant says that I'm going to bless you so that you can bless everyone. You know what? What is the blessing of the children, the nation of Israel, old nation of Israel, or even current Judaism to us? The only blessing, folks, is that Jesus came through that line. That's the blessing. It's that Christ is the one that can now be king of Jew and Gentile alike, who brings in people of every tribe, tongue, and nation. The promised blessing was the person of Jesus. Not that Israel have its own land or its own place, and God included all of that to show you that this king has a kingdom also. But the focus was always on the king, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He's the only righteous one. The law reveals, the Mosaic law shows us through this whole concept now of having to have priests that would go in and intercede for you. Because Old Testament, you weren't going in. If you were sick, you couldn't even go to the temple. The presence of God was there. So if you were going to meet with God and their comprehension at that point, not really grasping omnipresence, you had to go to the temple to meet with God. And you had to do it through an intermediary and through a priest because the law proves you're wicked. The law could never make you righteous. The law was always going to simply define your sinfulness. And so it pointed you to a realization of what? We need a righteous one. So that when you get to Hebrews, you see that Jesus is that perfect righteous high priest. Jesus is the one who goes in once and offers sacrifice once and for all. And so the blood of goats and bulls, they could never deliver us, but the blood of the one true lamb has. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise. He's the only righteous one. And then David, we realize we need a true king. Judges takes you what a land is like under anarchy. And so you have this constant cycle in Judges of every man does that which is right in his own eyes, and it's terrible, and so then God brings a judge, the judge seems to help for a while, and then the judge dies, and then everybody does that which is right in their own eyes, and it's just a book filled with carnality and wickedness. The whole point of Judges is to make you get to the end and say, we need a king. And the Jews think that, Israel thinks that, and so the problem is they don't want the king God wants, they want to pick their king. They want to pick the strongest and the smartest and the tallest and the guy that has the most achievements because man looks on the outside, but God looks on the heart. And then when God chooses a king for them, it seems right, right? He goes from a teenage boy who can defeat giants with courage. He, He sings and writes songs that ultimately become really the worship hymnal of the nation of Israel. 
and our greatest comfort in seasons of sorrow, but even he, later in life, commits adultery and then murders the husband. And it leaves you realizing that even the godliest man we've ever seen isn't enough. We need a true king. Jesus is the true king. So he promises David it will come through you. Jesus explains it when he's seen him on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection, talking to these two travelers. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures the thing concerning himself. Numbers of times in the ministry of Jesus, he would look at the religious leaders and he would say, you know the law? You know the, the word, what we would think of as the Old Testament, and you don't see that it points to me? All promises of God were pointing to Jesus Christ. And so Paul is making this important defense of integrity. People that are in dark times, people that are in hours of suffering, will turn the most to the promises of God. Coming at the start of a book that's 13 chapters of ministry suffering, this is heavy on Paul's heart. Paul is giving us a glimpse into where his own heart has gone when he has suffered. He's clung to the promises of God, and so he understands the danger if they don't believe that they can trust the promise giver. Because it leaves people that are already suffering with no hope. He doesn't want to do that to them, and he needs them to understand this. And so Jesus is the yes, ultimately, of our promised hope. You can see this in verses 21 through 22. When we consider our prior sinful condition and what God has done now, it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Paul's argument at this point is how are you saying that my word was untrue when because of the word I brought to you, you have Jesus in you? Like, it doesn't make sense to Paul. Like, we don't have this conversation about whether or not I'm truthful and God can be trusted unless I had come to you and told you about God. He's pointing out the incredible irony of this. He's simply saying, don't you know Jesus? Then you should recognize the truthfulness, the veracity of the message that I bring to you. This would be like if you had never learned how to sew before. You had never stitched a stitch in your life. You were like me in eighth grade home ec. Me and Miss Harvey, who was the bane of my eighth grade existence. Um, she, this dear older lady, she should have retired 20 years before, and she would have none of Steve John's nonsense. And so if my sewing machine messed up, so try to imagine me sewing, and that's a laughable picture anyway. But I'd try to sew, and my sewing, the needle would break, the thread would get messed up. I'm like, this is not working. I don't, and she would always do this, maybe, and she had this kind of like high nasal, maybe it's the O-P-E-R-A-T-O-R. I'm like, lady, we better to go nine rounds on this one, right? And she sent me, I was supposed to sew a bag. So eighth grade Steve told my parents the night before I needed fabric. You know, I had known for a month, but, you know, um, why be pressured? Uh, and so uh, I go out, and then when I show up, my mom takes me to Joanne Fabrics or something, and, and, well, how much do you need? 
And my parents at that point had realized you have to give kids enough rope to hang themselves or they never learn anything, right? And so she's like, I'm like, I don't know if my sheet at home, how much do you think I should need? And my mom's like, that's not my project. And so I'm like, uh, and I can remember three. So I said three feet. She's like, all right. So that's what we got. Okay, so yes, everybody else in my sewing class sewed a normal-sized backpack. I sewed one the size of an American Girl doll, right? Like, I'm clueless, right? So my point is I'm clueless. So imagine me getting to the end of that semester one time when this, this sweet home ec teacher is showing us quilts that she sews, you know, full-on wedding dresses that she sews, and, and imagine me raising my hand and saying, yeah, but... Uh, I don't know if you noticed, but the stitching over here on the sleeve seems a little off. Are you really sure that was the best technique to use? I mean, you'd be like, you'd be stunned to silence over the idiocy and the arrogancy of that, right? Paul's kindly saying the same thing. How are we having a conversation about the integrity of the sermons I'm preaching to you people in Corinth? When you don't even know Jesus unless I preach to you the sermons I preach to you people in Corinth. Like, really? And you should look and understand how God has been the promise yes to you. And understand then, because God has been the promise yes to you, that's the message he brings to you. He gives it to him in some ways that this is one of those moments that um, you don't need, be very clear, you don't need Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic, Chaldean to understand the Bible. But it's, it's some, sometimes, not not even frequently, I don't think. But sometimes it's a little bit like turning the black and white TV to color, right? And the words can help us a little bit. And so I just, when that happens, I, I want to help you, right? Because there's a beauty there that I don't want you to miss. And so the language that he uses here, look what he says. First of all, he says we are established, right? He says, and it is God who establishes us with you in Christ. What he's using here is a word that communicates so significantly to those that are in seasons of darkness. And it's a beautiful image of someone that's drowning. Now, whenever we picture drowning, we picture what we've seen in the movies or TV. We, pic we picture people, help, stop, screaming. That's not how people drown. Because they are using every effort, every particle of energy in their body to gasp for air. They can't scream. People, when they drown, drown silently. And they just go under. Obviously terrifying. Obviously a nightmare. And what he's saying is we are as yet drowning. And yes, in our sinfulness. But sometimes in our sorrowing. And in our suffering. And when he says establishes, it's like you're going down for the last time. And the light as you're being swallowed is getting dim. And then all of a sudden, he reaches in and grabs you. And when he says establishes you, it means to set you on a stable, rock-solid, never-moving ground. He says, look, and do you not understand, oh, sweet believer, that Jesus establishes you. 
but he presses on from that. And this is one of those where you get the sense that Paul really is, at his core, a preacher. And he got lots to say, because then he goes on and says, he has anointed us. He establishes us with you in Christ, and he has anointed us. And, and what's powerful here is Paul is telling them, if you're going to accuse me of lacking integrity, you're accusing the word of lacking integrity, you're actually assaulting your own soul because we're all in this together. And so when he says that they have been anointed, it literally means to have been made holy. Sometimes we suffer, and it's because we're in a sin-fallen world. The garden has collapsed and there's thorns and thistles and and it's nothing we've done it just is the world we live in and then sometimes we suffer because of things we've done we sin we ask god to forgive us but we are as yet in a world that whatever a man sows that shall he also reap and god is not mocked and and god is gracious sometimes and doesn't let us experience the full consequences of things we've done here and yet life is hard because of what we've done And it's so important to people that are sorrowing and suffering to be reminded that's not how God sees you. And even, even when you're sorrowing and suffering is because of things you've done, run to Hebrews 12 because he only does that in the lives of his children. And so this sorrowing and suffering, even if it's a consequence of what you've done, is a sure reminder that he loves you and he cares for you. And his discipline is not intended to destroy you, but to drive you to be more like Jesus. You need to be reminded in the darkness of suffering that he anoints you and he has declared you holy. Our filthy robes have been replaced with pure white robes made for princes and princesses. And then Paul says that we have been sealed. And who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. We obviously, we think of that as seal. And, and the word definitely has that spectrum, right, of you write a letter and you seal it. I've got these wax seals. And so um, every once in a while, you know, um, I'm, I'm kind of romantic. And um, I, 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 sometimes I write poetry, not very well, right? Um, but, but I try to write some things. And, and so sometimes if I, if I send a note to somebody, uh, uh, particularly to a child, or, or if I send a note, try to be romantic, and I give my wife a card or something, I'll, I have a wax seal, and I drip wax on it, and I put this little imprint, and I've got a heart image thing that you could do, and a fleur-de-lis, and some other things, and a little feather looks like a quill pen. And so I like to seal it. It's fun. It's just kind of cool. Right? You get this card and you pop the seal. It's kind of old school. So we think of seal on a scroll. You might even think revelation. They seal seven seals on the scroll. It's a way of, of just containing it. What, what is in will never be let out. That is the spectrum. But it's not the most important part of the way the Bible uses seal for us. The most important part of that word spectrum it was, it was a sign of ownership. When you sealed something, you said, this is mine. So, and I think I told you this story before. So when my brother, <laughs> several months ago, sends me a picture of his, I, I think, four or five-year-old standing in front of something, and he's pointing to it like this, and the name Stephen Johns is written on it. And I'm like, why is my nephew writing my name? But that's kind of cool. That must be the favorite uncle. 
And my brother says, yeah, we're trying to teach him to not write his name on things. And I'm like, but that ain't his name. And suddenly the lights start going off. Because when I was five, I grasped this concept that if my name was on it, it was mine. And so I took a marker and went through our whole house. And anything that I wanted, it got my name on it including a toy box our father had made for us that now lives in Wisconsin with my brother. That when he redid the toy box, (laughs) older brothers, right? He refused to paint over that because he always wanted to preserve his five-year-old kid brother saying, this is mine, I put my ownership on it. Seal means ownership. Now, why does that matter? Because when you and I are in dark valleys, When you and I are sorrowing and suffering and struggling, whether it's ministry suffering for Paul, whether it's physical, emotional, uh, financial, relational, it can feel like God is so far from us, can't it? Where are you? Do not feel guilty with those struggles. The psalmist felt that way, and he puts words to those struggles. And so that's why we love Psalm 23 so much, right? Because even in the dark valley, he is with us. And his rod and his staff gives comfort to us. Well, what's interesting is rod and staff are used to beat away uh, wolves and bears, but they're also used to keep sheep in check. Because when we're walking through dark valley, you've got to keep the sheep close to you. It's like when you take your kid out uh, to the mall or, or, or out and about or to the zoo or to music, really anywhere, and they just learned how to walk. And, and they like to just put, I don't know, uh, they, put, they put some serious speed on those little legs, right? And they just take off from you. Or the last time you've gone to a store and your kid disappeared on you, they pulled that little stunt, like what my brother and I did, we thought it was great fun to hide in the middle of clothing racks, i.e., Give my mom every possible gray hair that you could imagine as her children have disappeared, right? And so we are prone to wander. We are prone to run, not lose our salvation, not despise God, but particularly in dark valleys, it's easy for us to start casting about for any light source. And so we need the staff to hook us and bring us close to us. You need to be reminded when you're suffering, he owns you. And like a parent with a white-knuckle grip on a two-year-old will never let you go. And Paul is telling us this is some of the fruitfulness of the yes in Jesus to us. We must speak and show the hope that we have then in the promises of God. So then how do we actually do that? We have to train our voice. It's the pattern of Paul to the Corinthians And it's the call of God on every one of us to speak of these promises. For you and I to tell our own hearts and others how we can find hope in the promises of God. How we can trust them. But we are fleshly people and there's all kinds of hindrances to us doing this. Um, It's hard for us to obey it in our own hearts. We are in seasons of sorrow or suffering. It's very difficult to remind ourselves of the promises of God. On top of that, Satan wants to warp everything from God. And so we have really unhelpful memes and forwarded posts, right? Like, like pray this three times or click amen for God to get a, give you a blessing. Or 
some other kind of nonsense intended to make few people feel good, but frankly are false promises. God is not a, a slot machine put in, pull the lever, get three cherries, and win the prize. And so Satan loves to warp the promises of God for people all the time. And into that, we have the obstacles of our own flesh, and we live in a world where words are cheap and people want proof. So how can it happen? How do you and I appropriate or make internal or make real to us the promises of God? And so I want to give you a couple of ways to train your voice. First of all, walk in the truth. Walk in the truth. Promises are, of God are for his glory. They're for his glory. You will almost universally get off track. If you start casting about in the Bible, looking for a promise that's going to just make your income bigger, your health better, your relationship stronger. Oh man, I got to find a verse that's going to help me, and really it's all about me. This is the James concept of some of you don't receive because you don't pray, and then others of you are praying so that you might consume it upon your lust. The promises of God are ultimately for his glory, not for my glory or your glory. Let me give you one example of the temptation here. You need to you need to read the word. You need to study the word. You need to know the word. You need to interpret the promises of God in context. One of the ones that, that I've heard people quote most frequently is Isaiah 55, 11, right? God's word will not return to himself void. And the way I've universally heard that promise given is, man, you've, you're witnessing to somebody, you're evangelizing somebody, um, you're trying to disciple somebody, counsel somebody, and you, there's no fruit. You're not seeing transformation, you're not seeing change, you're not seeing growth. Um, and so we wanna, we're casting about for promises to keep us enduring, and people will say things like, well, Isaiah 55, 11, just be sure the word will not return void. And what they're meaning by that is you've shared the gospel, eventually these people will get saved. The problem is that's not what that promise is communicating. And in fact, in Isaiah, and then when Jesus uses that same promise, it's actually a promise of judgment. You see, because when God makes that promise, his promise is my word will work for my glory. And yes, for some, that is going to be rescue and redemption. But I want you to know, sometimes my word's going to go forth to make my judgment crystal clear on the final day. And to leave them with no excuse on the final day. Well, you're going to run into a real problem if you want that promise just to be about making you feel better and giving you some internal confidence, well, they're going to get saved eventually. I just know it, because he said his word won't return void. But when you understand it for his glory, then you rest in the promise because you want his word to do what he wants his word to do. Whatever is going to make him big and not you. And so you must walk in the truth by understanding the promises of God are for his glory, but secondarily, the promises of God are linked to his character not our perceptions. Know his character, and you will see his promises more clearly. When our experience comes into conflict with what we know or what we thought we knew about God, we have to run to the truth of his character, not the sinking sands of our interpretation of life. The rocking waves of our emotions or the dark depths of our sinful perspectives the rock of his truth is the steady anchor of our soul that we say amen to. 
It's because I can trust him, not my circumstances. I can trust him, not my perceptions of reality around me. I can run to his character that he is all loving and all knowing and all powerful. And he is on mission for his glory, which is ultimately for my good. We need to not just walk in the truth, though. We must walk in the light. Paul, David Pallison, and if you have an ESV study Bible, they took a part of an article he wrote about this, and it's in the ESV study Bible somewhere under application. He originally wrote it for a counseling conference in a journal, Biblical Counseling article. He identifies three core promises in the Bible, uh, kind of beyond those covenant promises that you see woven throughout. You see in Exodus 34, 6 and 7, uh, just to be remind you quickly, that's where it talks about God being slow and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, but he will execute righteousness. And so it's a promise of justice and mercy, of judgment and salvation. In Numbers, it's the classic benediction verse that God would bless you and keep you, make his face shine upon you. It's a promise of God's blessed favor on his children. Those are two of the core promises. I, I say this to you because in the midst of 7,000 promises, where do you go when you need promises? I would actually encourage you to start with these three core promises because you will see them expanded throughout the entire Bible. And then the third one, just to give us something to kind of hang on to this morning, be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them for it is the Lord your God who goes with you he will not leave you or forsake you. It's a promise of his unceasing love and empowering presence. Jesus is the yes to every one of these. How does Jesus fulfill these specifically to you should be your question. One of my biggest fears was to stand alone with a doctor and hear horrible news and then tell it to my wife. And that's exactly what happened in my life a few weeks ago. To be very clear with you, to be very transparent with you, I stood there all alone, nearly hyperventilating. I've never had a panic attack in my life. I've never had an anxiety attack. I'm not taking shots at folks that have. I'm just telling you, for me, that was a surreal and new and not a fun experience. And I'm standing there and I'm just trying to wrap my brain about what I know I'm about to hear. All alone, no one there. In a hallway, it just feels wrong to hear that kind of news. And all I could think was I will never leave you or forsake you. My heart just kept trying to go back, and it was so hard to do this, to preach to my own heart, Jesus telling the disciples, I tell you the truth, it's your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. I tell you this, first and foremost, preach these to your own heart. Preach the promises of God to your heart. It's hard to do. It feels impossible. But you must in that moment choose to walk by faith and not by sight. Preach these to your own heart. Secondarily, live honestly before others so that they can see both the need and the faithfulness of God. We're committed to community here at Kennelly Road, living in open and transparent relationships with one another because we're convinced this is one of God's primary means that he uses to show his glory and transform us into the image of God. But no one will know the light of God's promises 
that have been shined into, shown into your valley if you pretend you're never in the valley. Live honestly before others so they can see the need and so they can learn how God has been faithful all along the way. It does not serve people to act like you live on the plateau and you're never in the valley. And it does not serve people that when you've been in the valley and you've seen God's kindnesses, you never say it. Do you know in the Gospels when we, Jesus knows we'd be tempted to believe that the Father doesn't love us? He points to little things, right? He says, oh, but look at the sparrows. Look at the, fl- look at the flowers of the field and look how God does that. And so it's, it's just, it's ironic and it's so kind because if you've been in a dark valley, you know you can't think big things. You're just looking for little things, right? So I'll just give you one because it's been a dark valley. I'm not gonna lie to you, but we've seen God's faithfulness. This past Monday, um, some, a family in the church took our kids and it was great because my wife and I were just trying to clear mind and talk and just work through some things, get house ready. And we're sitting there and just one of the things that come, I was like, is there anything we need? My wife says, well, we're out of K-cups, right? And so like to a coffee drinker, that matters, right? Um, if you don't like coffee, you're like, oh, see that? Jesus is trying to deliver our brother. And, and you're wrong, right? <laughs> so, um, but, but I just wanted some coffee. And and we're like out of K-cups, but I didn't want to leave because we're waiting on doctor's calls. And, and so I'm just sitting there I'm like, oh, I could probably call somebody from the church, have them pick up a box of K-cups from Costco, but I don't know if I want to bother anybody right now. I know, I know, that's a me problem, that ain't a you problem, right? But just, just we're just, oh, and it just was so much. It was just one more little thing. And we just moved on a conversation. Like 10 minutes later, my wife gets this text. We didn't tell anybody, we didn't ask anybody. We didn't even pray about it. This person said, um, hey, dear friend up here in Greenville, you know, they just felt prompted by the Spirit, just want to make sure this is okay, but just, they just ordered a box of K-Cups from Costco to have delivered to your door. What do you do with a God like that? Like, we didn't ask. That was like God saying, I got you. And I want to show you in little ways and in very big ways, I got this. It's wrong if I only tell you valley and I don't ever tell you about the kind of God who walks through a living room, listens to the conversation of a couple, and says, there's another way I want to show my love. Live honestly so that people can see the need and the faithfulness of God. Then thirdly, do a deep dive to study the promise and see more of God. Just even this one, I will never leave you nor forsake you. If you were to study that through the Bible, you would see in Genesis 26, 24, it repeats that promise to give you courage in the face of your enemies. In, in Isaiah 49, he repeats the same promise because he communicates it transcends time. There will never be a moment where he leaves you or forsake you. In Matthew 28, 20, 28, 20, that he's going to stay with you through all eternity. And it's an answer to your anxiety in Philippians 4. Do a deep dive. Listen now, listen. In the moments, and sometimes it's sunny days, and sometimes it's dark valleys, but it's in these moments God can do a powerful work in your heart so that you can experience, live in, dwell in his abounding love and promises to you. When others see this happening, they get to see the faithfulness of God. They get to see the integrity of God. And they will hear you say, Amen. Yes, God, you are true. And your promises are true. And they will hear you say and live amen to the glory of God because Christ has been the yes of all of them.